Please be seated. The story is told about the young Teddy Roosevelt. When he was quite young, he was apparently very afraid of the Madison Square Church and would not step foot in it alone. His mother, Mitty, inquired what was going on with it, and he said he was afraid of the zeal that lived in the dark corners ready to pounce. And she said, what? What, what is the zeal? She said, well, I, I think it's a large animal, like an alligator or possibly even a dragon. And, she was, and he went on to say he'd heard the minister reading about it from the Bible. So she got out of concordance and looked up the word zeal and began to read the different passages that mentioned zeal. And when she got to our gospel lesson today, he got all excited and said, wait, 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 that's it. And the translation that they were reading at the time included verse 17, which said, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. It can be a bit of a scary passage, but not because of the monsters of zeal hiding in the church, but for other reasons. And this morning, I would like us to focus on it and, and to look at it. We're doing this as we continue our Lenten journey, where part of our task is to reflect on our brokenness and sin as a people and as individuals. And this passage to me calls us to do that in a number of different ways. But before we dig down, I think we need to look at the context on it just a bit. Of course, it's the great feast of Passover, this huge feast, and depending on what scholar I read today, they have different numbers as to how big it was, but it was huge in Jerusalem. Some say as many as two million or more Jews were gathered in Jerusalem for this feast. If you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you were expected to be there. And when you arrived, part of it going to the temple was to pay the temple tax. It was about a half a shekel, which I'm told is a little less than two days of labor. It had to be paid in a temple shekel or Galilean shekel. And because people came from all over with all kinds of currencies, they had to be exchanged. And so you had these money changers. And some have suggested that Jesus ultimately is going to get red hot. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Because these money changers are fleecing the people. We'll come back to that in a moment. The other thing that's taking place is that as people come to the temple, they're often making offerings. And when they do that, they're meant to offer an animal that's without blemish. And if they buy an animal outside or bring one or buy one outside the courts, it's going to have to go through an inspection with obvious potential issues and all of this going on. But if you buy one inside, it's pretty much guaranteed. It's going to be without blemish and it goes forward. And so again, some have suggested that these folks selling the different animals are gouging the people and that that's the issue. But if we read John's passage today, we don't really get that. But this is one of the passages where it's in all four of the gospels and some of the other gospels hint at that. John puts it, this passage up front. The others all have it at the back. I think they're complimentary, but John wants this told up front for his own purposes. So he puts it there. And our other question then is that's the context. Where is all this taking place? This is all taking place in the court of the Gentiles. So if you look at how you would move in towards the, the center of the temple, you had the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the Israelites, the court of the priests. So you're working that way in. It's all taking place that way. And we don't know for sure what hit Jesus' button on this deal, but he fashions a whip. 
He starts turning over tables. We've never seen Jesus like this. He is red hot angry. And we need, I think for us, it's something that calls us in itself that he's that angry for us to stop and really think about what's going on. What is it that has got him so worked up? There are a number of different theories. I want to put out two that I, I personally think are the most prominent in this. The first of which is that Jesus is completely um, ready to dismantle the sacrificial system. This idea that of, of putting the animals out there and using their blood and all this other stuff. Because there's been a whole chorus of prophets for a long time who've been saying that's not God's deal. You're missing the point in that. You can think about a lot of different examples. I think about Isaiah in the first chapter saying, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have enough burnt offerings of rams. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Bring no more vain sacrifices. And there are lots of different examples that we can go on from there. We can think about Jeremiah. We can think um, about Hosea. We can think about how even one of the Psalms goes into this place of not doing this. And then in a couple chapters from where we are in John today, we're going to get Jesus more or less saying it's not where you worship, but it's about worshiping more or less in Jesus. It's more or less in that place. It seems to me that Jesus' complaint and anger is not fueled in this by malfeasance or some kind of mismanagement of the money changers or those selling animals, but this bigger picture of what's taking place. And you combine that with his um, frustration with public piety that we read about on Ash Wednesday. And it brings us back to thinking what he wants is for us to bring our hearts, to render our hearts. I mean, Jesus, when he comes down to saying what the greatest commandment is, he's going to say, love God with everything and love your neighbor. He's about bringing your heart into this thing. He's about this relationship piece. It's not about dry ritual. So for us in our Lenten journey, as we reflect on our brokenness and our sinfulness in different ways, we have to ask, have we packed up our hearts in some bag and left them there? Or do we come with them alive and ready to give to God in this relationship, in this way. And the truth is, ritual and liturgy becomes enormously beautiful and transcendent when we do that. But it becomes a terrible thing without it. It becomes a dry ritual. That the kind, I think, that fuels Jesus' anger in this. And if we're in that place, we have to have the strength, I, I think, to ask Jesus to overturn our tables and to draw us back and rattle us to bring our hearts into this game. Well, I think there's one more thing that's worth thinking about in all of this that may well be part of Jesus's anger. Could even be his main anger, I don't know. But part of this is um, a hint that comes from one of the other gospels, not from the account given in John today. But in Mark's version of this gospel, he's talking about in part about how this is meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And so you stop for a minute and think, about where you are in this if you're a Gentile, if you're a non-Jew who's had some experience of God and you want to come pray or meditate or give praise, you're going to be out in the court of the Gentiles. That's going to be as far as you're going. That's where you're going to be. And yet that place has become just a marketplace. People are negotiating. All these trades are taking place. All this activity. Who could worship in that? 
And I think for us, as we think about what it means for us, as we bring back that and think maybe that's what Jesus is angry about, we have to reflect on the same question of whether or not we're a place that makes for a welcoming environment for the seeking stranger. I know for me, I, uh, for more than 10 years, I used to get my hair cut over at Mustang Barbers in, in Old Town. And I had this um, woman named Paula who cut my hair for those 10 years, and she was sort of a salt-of-the-earth person. And one day we were sitting there talking about church, and she told me the story that when she was young, her mother, who was a single mom, dressed her, they all went to church. And again, I don't, I don't know what her mom was like, but Paula was like the salt of the earth, and I don't know what she wore or how it went. But I know at the end of that service, the women of the church pulled her mom aside and told her that she was not appropriately dressed. And they never returned to church again, ever. And I think about what that means. It's one of the reasons why, not just because I'm downstairs doing the casual thing, but it's one of the reasons why I wear jeans to church on occasion. Because I'll take the looks. I'll take the stairs. I want this place to be a place of welcome. And I know we want to give our best to God, but not at the expense of welcome. And I think when we think about how hard these things are, I'm going to give some hard words to one of the commentators I like. William Barclay, the commentator from Scotland, talks about this passage, and he challenges the church to think about whether we're being a welcoming environment. And he says this, he says, is there anything in our church, a snobbishness, an exclusiveness, a coldness, a lack of welcome, a tendency to make the congregation into a closed club, an arrogance, a fastidiousness, which keeps the stranger out? These are, these are the hard questions and part of the reflection for us at Lent. And I think the prayer is if there's some way that we're not, there's some way we're engaging in those things, may we invite Jesus to overturn our tables and invite us to go deeper into a place of love and welcome and mercy and grace that meets people at the door. Amen.